Well, hello and welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, Western Canada's premier travel podcast, where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. June 6th marks the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion in Normandy in the Second World War. So in honor of that, later in the podcast, we're going to visit the Juneau Beach Centre in Normandy. Plus our resident cruise guy, the cruise guru himself, David Yeskel, will join us to tell us about the interesting story of the Norwegian Joy and why it is no longer servicing the cruise market in China and is now back in North America. But I want to start things out talking about air passenger rights. The government's new air passenger rights bill was announced on May 24th, and air passenger rights advocate Gabor Lukacs has some big concerns about it, so we've invited him to join us and share those concerns. Hi, Gabor. Good afternoon. The new regulations came out last week when it came it comes to air passenger rights in Canada. I mean, we could probably talk for hours uh, of the regulations, but to the average air passenger right now, what uh, changes will they notice if they notice anything? So the regulations will come uh, into force the first batch on uh, July 15th, 2019. And uh, what we are going to see is airlines having more official legitimate excuses for not paying compensation for some of the most obvious things that could happen to you, like being bumped from a flight. The, uh, those regulations, which I would rather call them anti-passenger regulations or airline protection regulations, um, give a kind of official uh, color to the typical airline excuses we have been hearing before. For example, airlines saying that something is outside of my control, even something as, a, as a, their own employees going on strike, or a uh, claim that, yes, it was within our control, but it was due to maintenance, so sorry, you're out of luck. One also concerns me is that those regulations allow airlines to keep passengers on the tarmac for uh, up to three hours and 45 minutes, instead of the Canadian standard for the past uh, 10 years, which had been uh, 90 minutes. Uh, one of the things that comes up a lot with delays, uh, tarmac delays, is weather. And I've heard this before. Uh, the airlines already say it. It's a weather event, so therefore it's out of our control. So this isn't going to help any kind of weather-related uh, delays, is it? So uh, when, when we're talking about weather, we need to be a bit careful. First of all, weather can cause a delay, which we do understand. But when you are on the plane, on the tarmac, that cannot be excused by weather because you should be transported back to the gate, allowed to disembark, be in the comfort of a terminal, perhaps get some food for yourself there. And you should not be stuck in the aircraft on the tarmac for nearly four hours, even if there is a major storm. I'm not saying that you should be taking off, but there is no rationale for keeping people in the plane. Tell me about some of the other things that bother you with the regulations. Again, we only have a certain amount of time, but uh, highlight a few of the other things, perhaps. Other issues that we see here is uh, with respect to a two-tier system that if you fly on a so-called small carrier, then uh, you would get far less compensation when it comes to being rerouted they actually can walk away from the obligation to transport you. They can uh, simply say that we don't have flights to the destination. So with large carriers, uh, you would be rerouted, including on flights of other airlines. But on small carriers, they don't have that obligation. Also, in the way that the, the regulations read, and we have to study it a bit closer, uh, in many cases, you would not even be getting meals or hotels. 
in situations where in Europe, at least you would be getting that. And now what about being bumped from an aircraft? What are some of the changes that might happen there? Uh, what happens is that they are defining the notion of denied boarding so narrowly that it is hollow. So you and I would, would believe that the person who shows up at the airport with their passport, with their confirmed booking, on time before the check-in counter closes as per the official rules, and yet is not allowed on the plane, that person has been bumped. But under the regulations, the passenger will also have to prove that the reason they didn't get on the flight was that the flight was actually oversold, overbooked. So mm-hmm. there were more tickets more sold and more people showing up at the gate than the number of seats available on the aircraft. Now you tell me how an average passenger can know whether a flight was overbooked. Mm-hmm. What should have the government done? If you were the, the minister, what would have you have done? I would have, uh, <laughs> it's a funny question. I think what the government should have done is uh, follow Senate's advice to enshrine the 90 minute limit in the law, in the legislation, the primary legislation. And with respect to flight delays, uh, cancellations and denied boarding, they should have followed the European Union's gold standard, which recognizes that if you're bumped, there are no excuses for the airlines. It doesn't matter whether the flight was actually overbooked or not. You don't have to prove whether it was overbooked. You were at the airport, you had a valid ticket, you had your travel documents with you, they didn't put you on a plane, so you get compensation. Simple as that. With respect to flight delays and cancellations in Europe, there is also a presumption that the airline is responsible and the airline has the burden of proving the existence of extraordinary circumstances which do not include uh, maintenance issues. Well, it'll be interesting to see uh, how it all uh, bears out in the uh, coming months and in the years, I guess. Uh, You can find more information on the Air Passenger Rights website. It's airpassengerrights.ca, and the founder and president is Gabor Lukacs. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, Gabor. Thank you very much for having me. Well, if you're a follower of the cruise world, you know that the Norwegian Joy is one of Norwegian Cruise Line's newer ships, and it was designed for the Asia market sailing out of China. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. So joining us to tell us the story around the Norwegian Joy is David Yeskel. He's otherwise known as the cruise guru. Hi, David. Hi, Randy. Tell me the uh, background uh, before we get into this interesting story about the Norwegian Joy. Tell me the, the background on the Norwegian Joy. Yeah, so this was a ship that Norwegian Cruise Line built for the Chinese market. Gorgeous ship, um, you know, delivered to its Shanghai home port in 2017 with multiple casinos, tea rooms, expanded shopping promenade, you know, a variety of Asian restaurants. There was a Tai Chi garden on the pool deck. And and along with the industry's first go-kart track on the top deck, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. And ship arrived in Shanghai with great fanfare. Um, it had big hopes for it. And for various reasons, um, business and regulatory environment in China is very challenging. The way cruises are sold there is also very different. It adds a lot of risk to the operator. So, for instance, these wholesalers essentially are charged with selling, let's say, 500 cabins. Mm -hmm. Whatever they can't sell, they can turn back to the cruise line 
a few weeks before sailing. So it, it makes it very difficult then to sail them again. Um, the cruises are short. There were Chinese and South Korea tensions that affected itineraries. And so all these things combined um, really, really contributed to low yields that Norwegian was, was getting. And they made a calculus that if they brought the ship back to the U.S., it could make more money for them. And, you know, this is one benefit of the cruise industry is they can move their assets to where they they work better. And, and I think it was a great move for them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's not like a hotel where once it's built, it's stuck there. Right, uh, right. <laughs> they're pretty mobile. You can just move it out of the way. So not, not so much joy on the Norwegian joy. I, had, I couldn't resist <laughs> saying that. Uh, where, was, where was the itineraries uh, supposed to go, though? So it was four and five night itineraries. So typically the itineraries in China are short, uh, typically four to five nights. And so it was mainly South Korean ports and back to China. But the uh, Chinese South Korean tensions affected those. So essentially the Chinese government forbid Norwegian and other cruise ships from calling at South Korean ports. Um, those were more preferable to the Chinese guests. And so they had to substitute Japanese ports, which aren't as favorable for the Chinese guests. Uh, so that, that, that's, the, the ships didn't have a lot of places to go mm-hmm. uh, just because of the short itinerary and geographical realities. So um, the itineraries didn't, weren't, weren't that appetizing, ultimately, because of the, uh, when South Korea was taken off the map. And that and the fact that uh, many of the uh, wholesalers could <laughs> throw back a bunch of empty cabins right. a couple of weeks before a cruise <laughs> right. really doesn't spell a very good business model, does it? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, there were several things that really combined to, to make it a very challenging environment. And, and by the way, Norwegian isn't the only company that has to deal with this. So, um, but, but they made an interesting calculus with this ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, what's the state of the Norwegian joy today? So... It's great. I have to tell you, I was on the U.S. inaugural of the ship uh, just a few weeks ago. It was a short three-night cruise from Vancouver to L.A. And what they did, they spent $50 million to westernize the ship. So this was done in a three-week, well, I call it a miracle dry dock in uh-huh. Singapore. Uh, it's amazing what they did in three weeks. They sized down the casinos. They reduced the shopping options significantly, uh, enlarged the spa and the fitness center, they added 13 restaurants and lounges, a kind of similar to, to match Norwegian Bliss, the sister ship that's mm-hmm. already sailing in Alaska. Uh, they modified the go-kart track. They had to widen the lanes a little bit. Don't ask. I'm not sure exactly why the American, you know, <laughs> American guests needed a wider go-kart track than the Chinese guests, but uh, I couldn't get that question answered. Uh, they replaced every piece of carpeting aboard, changed all the signage, resurfaced the pool deck. All this was done essentially in three weeks in Singapore Amazing. At, a, at a cost of $50 million. The ship was westernized, essentially, and um, uh, they removed the tea rooms. I think they did an incredible job. And when I was on it, it looked like a new build. It looked like a brand new ship that had just come out of the shipyard. Wow. And it says a lot about uh, North American markets versus Chinese markets, right? What they did to accommodate a a North American market. Exactly. Exactly. So the ship was very different, was configured very differently for the Chinese. And, um, you know, it may have worked in a different regulatory and business environment, Mm. but for for now at least, um, it's back. And so, you know, the, the sister ship to this ship, Norwegian Bliss, was in Alaska last summer. And they had the highest seasonal yields ever for a Norwegian ship in that 
on for that ship in Alaska last summer. Wow. So I think this made Norwegian's decision a no-brainer. You know, we've got essentially a sister ship, an exact ship. We didn't have enough capacity last year in Alaska. Let's bring it back. And they did. And so far, it's proven to be a great move because the ship is already sailing really well. Uh, how many passengers can the Norwegian Joy hold? Just under 4,000 passengers. So that's a large ship we're talking here. Very large ship. It's a mega ship. Yeah, about 3,800 passengers at double occupancy uh, with thirds and fourths full, you know, closer to maybe 4,500. So it's a large ship. Well, give me your impressions now. I know you're only on for three days. It's hard to explore a huge ship like that, but what are some of your impressions of it? So I think it was beautiful. Uh, I think it was really beautiful. Tastefully, tastefully decorated. Um, they replaced a lot of the carpeting. I, I was told that the carpeting was a very loud, some very loud colors. Um, <laughs> so the carpeting's toned down. The ship's got a, a really an upscale feel. And this is, you know, this is a um, mass market or what's what what the industry uh-huh. prefers to call contemporary ship. Yeah. Um, I think it's got a really rich feel. Uh, gorgeous looking. There's a 270-degree forward observation lounge, which is just stunning. Floor-to-ceiling windows, so that's perfect for Alaska. The uh, the, the um, go-kart track on the top deck is really cool. I, I mean, it's a two-level electric go-kart track. And thinking about doing that, you know, while you're at sea is uh-huh. just amazing. There's a laser tag arena on the top deck. There's uh, oh, this cool, really cool virtual reality pavilion. Now, this was left on from the Chinese engagement. There's a, a, a large pavilion on the aft of deck 16 with about a dozen different virtual reality experiences. And um, they're big and they're sophisticated. And that was a really cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. And there's an upcharge for that. They'll charge, I think, $30 for 30 minutes in there. Uh, but that was really cool. Um, you know, a bunch of different restaurants, of course. That's Norwegian's thing. You have multiple restaurants. And and the food was very good. Uh, the service was very nice. Uh, I think I think the ship's going to be a big success back here. And uh, I'm glad they brought it back. Mm-hmm. Well, the, getting back to the racetrack, is there a, what's the wait time on that? And is there an extra charge, or is that just part of your cruise? There is an extra charge. It's ten dollars, so you get about eight or ten laps, and you can make reservations for that. That's so cool. you don't have to necessarily wait in line. Um, you can book everything. There are these one of the benefits of a new ship. There are these interactive kiosks all throughout the ship. And you can make dinner reservations there, book show tickets there, make go-kart track reservations on those kiosks. And so, you know, you're locked into your time and you don't have to spend time waiting in line at different Mm -hmm. venues. So I think it's a great concept. Nothing like making it easy to spend your money, right? Exactly, right. They make it easy to spend your money. And most of the restaurants are Norwegian, so you know, uh, about half the restaurants are extra charged for dinner. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people book with a promotion that they make available for uh, specialty dining. They get three or four of those with their fare, maybe included alcohol too. Um, so, but, but people need to book those restaurants early in the cruise because they book up quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it sailing Alaska this summer? What's its itinerary? It's sailing Alaska this summer from Seattle, round trip Seattle, you know, inside passage, Juneau, Ketchikan, and uh, Hubbard Glacier, I believe, is their glacier visit. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the fall, it'll reposition to Los Angeles where it will do Mexico and Transcanal itineraries. So it's essentially a West Coast ship for uh, for this next year, at least. It's nice. dedicated to the West Coast. Very nice. Well, you can find more information, the story on the Norwegian Joy, Norwegian Joy back from China, with a bang at tours.com, uh, written by David Yeskel. He is the cruise guru. You can follow him on Twitter, at Cruise Guru. Uh, always a pleasure to chat, David. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. Same here. Mm-hmm.
Well, June 6th marks the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion in Normandy during the Second World War. And one of the places I think is a must-see for all Canadians to visit is the Juneau Beach Centre located in Normandy. So to tell us what's planned for June 6th and visiting the centre in general is Mike Bechtold. He's the Executive Director of the Juneau Beach Centre Association. Hi, Mike. Hi, Randy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Give me some background on how the Juneau Beach Centre came to be what it is today. Sure. Well, the Juno Beach Centre is Canada's Second World War Museum in France, and it's a museum of Canada in the Second World War, even though it's on Juno Beach, where the, the Canadians landed on the 6th of June, 1944, and it talks about that story. It's really about the entirety of our Second World War experience. The museum is the, uh, the, the creation of a, a group of Canadian veterans who went to France uh, many years after the war, and we're absolutely shocked that there was no footprint of Canada in Normandy anymore, that uh, there were British museums and American museums and French museums. But when they went to Juneau Beach, there was nothing, uh, some plaques, some street names. The, the local French never forgot the Canadian contribution, but anybody else coming to the beach wouldn't have any idea of what had happened or the important role Canada played in, in the Second World War uh, in, in general. Mm-hmm. And the uh, prime mover in it was a, a guy named Garth Webb. And Garth was a, a, a veteran. He landed with 14th Field Regiment on Juneau Beach at Bernier-sur-Mer on the 6th of June. And he kind of made it his life's work to, to get it to happen. So by the literal force of his personality, he cajoled people. He talked to governments. He shook money out of places where you wouldn't think you could get money. And on the uh, 6th of June, 2003, the Juneau Beach Centre was opened. Well, nice. I imagine it's a very moving experience to be there. How many visitors do you get each year? Uh, we get uh, about seventy-five or 80,000 visitors through there a year, and they're uh, a mix of uh, largely French, but also Canadians and, and Brits and mm-hmm. uh, Dutch and from all around the world. I am looking at your website. It's junobeach.org, and it gets, uh, you have the permanent exhibitions. Uh, you have some temporary ones. Uh, if I'm planning a visit there, what do I need to know? Well, the museum is designed for all ages. So if you're somebody who knows a lot about the Second World War, there's stuff you're going to learn that you've never heard about before. If you know absolutely nothing about the war, it's the place to go. If you're a child, we have a, uh, a new youth circuit that's just been opened that is uh, geared towards uh, young people to to give them an introduction into Canada in the Second World War. So it is a pretty comprehensive history lesson, not just about the, the D-Day landing itself. I'm, again, I'm looking on the website. Uh, so you go through different rooms. Uh, starts with uh, Room A, which is uh, quite unique. I think this would be a pretty unique experience. It looks like it's like a simulation of the landing on the day itself, right? Yeah, yeah, you kind of walk in sort of out of the, uh, the, the common area and into a landing craft and a video plays and the, it's almost like the ramp drops and, and you emerge into the museum. Can you do this on your own or is it better to have a, a guided tour? How does that work? Well, there's two parts to the museum. So there's the inside part of the museum, which is self-guided and you walk your way through the museum it takes you from the descent into war in 1939 and, and the terrible time that was the, the Depression and and uh, takes you through our Second World War experience. There's exhibits on uh, Hong Kong and Dieppe and the Battle of the Atlantic and the Bomber War and, uh, of course, on the, the war in Northwest Europe and, and D-Day in particular. 
And then the last thing you do before you go into what we call the Canada Today room is you get to see a video, which if you walk out of that video without tears in your eyes, you're a, a better person than I am. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine, right? Uh, and then there's the park area as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, so one thing that, that, that people were relatively unhappy about was how little D-Day there was in the Juno Beach Centre. And uh, they didn't understand that it was uh, a museum that was more than just D-Day. But we've uh, taken steps to, to rectify that by opening up the Atlantic wall defences because uh, Juno Beach is, is right on, on Juno Beach. It's uh, the beach where the Royal Winnipeg Rifles landed on the 6th of June and right beside where the Regina Rifles had, uh, had come ashore. And there's all the remnants of the German defences right within steps of the beach, bunkers and tunnels and things. So uh, over the last 10 years, we've been digging those out and opening them out. And you get to uh, now take a a guided tour with one of our Canadian guides. We uh, bring about seven or eight uh, Canadian university students over to the centre each year. And uh, they're from across Canada. They're all fluently bilingual. And uh, they'll take you on a tour uh, about 45 minutes of those uh, Atlantic wall defenses to learn a little bit more about what happened to Canadian soldiers on D-Day. Mm-hmm. It's best to plan a whole day if you really want to immerse yourself in the experience, right? Yeah, for sure. There, there's lots there. I mean, you can probably get through a little bit quicker, but it's all it's all about your level of interest. And mm-hmm. Some people will go through quickly and then some will want to come back a second day to, to make sure they haven't missed anything. How easy is it to get there as uh, far uh, from a tourist uh, uh, point of view? Well, in France, Paris is the hub. And if you imagine it as spokes on a wheel, everything goes in and out of Paris. So from Paris, it's about a a two and a half hour drive or a two and a half hour train ride. And uh, if you're driving, it's really easy to get to uh, the Juno Beach Centre. Driving in in Normandy is, is a very pleasant experience. Um, if you don't have a car, there's other transit links that can get you from the, the major cities close by, either Caen or Bayeux, and uh, you can do that. Or there's lots of local companies that do battlefield guiding that, mm-hmm. that you can hire for a day, and, and they'll take you along Juno Beach. Because uh, remember, Juno Beach is about eight and a half kilometers uh, in width, and uh, the Juno Beach Centre is sitting on just one small uh, part of it. So you can get a, a private uh, guided tour of, of the Canadian sector or the American or the British and uh, have the Juno Beach Centre included in that tour. Mm-hmm. And it's open all year round. I, I'm looking at some of the, in January, I think you, your website says it's closed and obviously uh, like holidays like Christmas, but pretty much it's open all year round, right? Yeah, it's open all year round. Now with the, uh, the D-Day anniversary coming up mm-hmm. in just over a week, uh, the museum's going to be closed on the 5th and the 6th of June because of preparations for the, the anniversary and, and the ceremonies that are taking place on our site. But other than that, uh, you show up and uh, we'd love to invite you in. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, expand on that a bit, some of the uh, ceremonies that are happening on June 5th and 6th. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. Um, we're having our Canadian ceremony at Juno Beach being run by Veterans Affairs Canada. And that's at noon uh, French time on the 6th of June. And it's going to be broadcast live across Canada. So CTV or CBC or I believe Global is doing it as well. So you oh, can good. tune in bright, bright and early mm-hmm. uh, here in Canada. And there'll be replays all day long. Um, but we're expecting about 6,000 people at the ceremony. Uh, we understand the Prime Minister is coming, but we haven't received confirmation of that. 
but probably the most exciting part is that Veterans Affairs has brought a contingent of Second World War uh, D-Day and Normandy vets with them. Nice. And there's going to be about 40 or 45 uh, veterans uh, with us that day, probably more, because I expect others from Britain, et cetera, will, mm-hmm. will show up. And uh, these guys are, are amazing to talk to. They're now all in their the mid-90s, and, uh, yeah, the stories they can share are, are fascinating. Oh, yeah, I, I bet. Uh, you've probably been there many times. Do you have a favorite uh, exhibit that you like? Um, I'm an air power guy. So uh, when you walk into the uh, museum, there's a Spitfire, a big Spitfire model that's hanging over the, the central area. And uh, inside, there's a, a model of a, a Hawker Typhoon, the, uh, the, the tank-busting aircraft that uh, Canadian squadrons flew. And it was a model that was presented to us by a Canadian Typhoon pilot, a guy named Harry Hardy. And uh, it's really quite remarkable to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I imagine there's lots of uh, remarkable things to see at the uh, Juno Beach Centre. Anything I've missed that you might want to add? Uh, we'd, we'd love to see you over there. Um, please give us a, a ring if you've got any questions. We can help you uh, not just plan your visit to uh, the Juno Beach Centre, but to Normandy at large. Uh, myself and my staff all have a, a lot of experience in that part of the world, and we'd be happy to share uh, any information we can with you. Well, I think every Canadian should visit it. It's the uh, Juno Beach Centre. The website, if you want more information, is junobeachcentre.org. And Mike, Be- Mike Bechtold is the uh, Executive Director of the Juno Beach Centre Association. Appreciate your time, Mike. Uh, thank you. Thanks very much, Randy. And that is this week's Informed Traveller podcast. I want to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, take a minute, rate the show, leave us a review, and tell a friend about the podcast. And if you want to drop me a line, my email address is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler, or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.